Here at Fruitland, we have something we call the Covenant for Christian Living, Covenant for Christian Community, a, a picture of the way that we live together, kind of holy manners, if you will. One of them says that we acknowledge that everyone is at a different place in their walk with Jesus. This is a way of saying that we're all at a different place. Some of us have been following Jesus for decades. Some for maybe just a few months. Maybe some of us haven't decided to do that yet. And then we are at different places, if you will, in our spiritual growth. And it doesn't mean that necessarily one person's completely ahead of somebody else. Sometimes we're at one place up here in part of our growth and someplace down here in part of our growth and part of our life with Jesus. We're also all at a different place in some sense where some of us are young, like the kids sitting here. Some of us are old. Some of us are older. And so we experience life in different ways. We realize that what Jesus calls us to do looks different depending on where we are in life, not only in terms of our physical age, but in terms of our spiritual age and our maturity. So I offer that in part as a caveat as we begin this, because we're looking at the stories, the teachings of Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon that he gives, that Jesus gives, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the people who have committed their lives to following him. We have a temptation sometimes in the church to take the teachings of Jesus that are about lots of different things that are given to his disciples and try and apply them to everybody else. And Jesus is saying, these are for the people who have decided to follow me. Now, some of these teachings of Jesus are not particularly easy. They're challenging. They cause us to think. They cause us to reorient our lives in a different way. And this is one of those. And so Jesus offers up, and this is the second set of contrasts he gives in this sermon, where he's contrasting this way where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus has previously taught a couple of weeks back, we looked at that he's fulfilled the law. In other words, he's the one that everything points to, that all of the Bible points to Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, he's saying, everything is completed in me. Jesus is also saying, I'm the one who properly interprets. I'm the proper one who gives you the meaning of what God was talking about. Now, Jesus doesn't come and contradict what God had already said. So when he says, you have heard it said, he's affirming that. He's saying that's something that's true. Now, there are times where maybe later on in some of the other ones where he takes something that maybe there's been a misinterpretation or misapplication. But what he's getting at is this is what the Bible says. And so Matthew 5, verse 27, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, where did they hear that said? The Ten Commandments, right? The Big Ten, the Ten, these commandments that God had given to the people of Israel, the people of God, a thousand years earlier on Mount Sinai. So here are these instructions that he's giving. It says, you shall not commit adultery. So adultery, first definition, adultery was this, what Jesus meant and the people understood was adultery meant that Sex was to be confined to two married people, between a man and a woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. And it was within this mark of commitment, of openness, of vulnerability, of faithfulness. And so the language used was a covenant. There was this connection between them. And so any sexual activity outside of that was considered adultery because God had created and designed sex to be 
within that relationship, within that sense of faithfulness. In fact, part of the Old Testament, oftentimes God compares idolatry, the people of God chasing other gods, to unfaithfulness or to adultery. And it's a reminder that adultery is this breaking of this link. It's a breaking of this faithfulness. It's a breaking of the give and take of the mutuality between the two. And here's what, God, what Jesus is doing. He's reaffirming God's commands. He's saying, this is true. This is what God has designed. This is how God made things. But then, then he goes a little deeper. And what Jesus wants to get at is, it's not just our actions. He doesn't want us to just do the right thing. He wants our desires, our wants, our wishes, our, all to be changed too. He wants those to be right. He wants us to change on the inside. He wants us to have a, a pure, a renovated heart. And so he says this. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we use the word look in lots of different ways. We look at, but when Jesus says it here, he's, he says, when a woman looks at her, looks when, a man, when anyone looks at a woman lustfully or looks with the intent to lust. And so what Jesus is getting at is he's not just saying looking or noticing. He's not saying to simply look at a woman causes adultery in your heart. And it's not even really about how long but what Jesus is getting at is the intent of what's going on inside of us. It's a look that desires, a look that imagines, that seeks to possess or dominate. In fact, the language is almost like that of greed. It's a looking that sees a woman. And so to back up, Jesus here uses anyone, and he talks about primarily men looking at women. And that's the kind of language I'm going to use. But I want us to be clear, it's not exclusively that way, that women can also lust for men. But for the sake of my brain this morning, I'm not going to switch back and forth and constantly say he, she, she, her, him. But we're going to use primarily the issue of men looking at women. But to be clear, it's not primarily a one-way street in this. But the language is here of looking with lust is this sense of dominating, a sense of possessing, a looking at someone with the intent to own, looking at them to desire, looking at them with sexual fantasies going on. It's not simply the act of walking down the street and saying, wow, that's an attractive woman. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about when it's the, wow, that's an attractive woman, and then the, the gaze continues and lingers, and then the mind begins to go and begins to maybe perhaps mentally undress or begins to go further with that. And so we remember this. I said marriage was designed where? Marriage was designed for mutuality, and it was a relationship. And what happens with lust is it removes the sex from the relationship. The sexual act was designed to be within the marriage, within this relationship. And what lust does is it turns the other person into simply an object to satisfy your own desires. Simply something for your own gratification. And so in part, what Jesus is doing is he's addressing selfishness. That in part, what lust is, is a selfishness because it's all about satisfying your own desires separated from relationship. The second thing that Jesus is getting at is that lust dehumanizes the other person. Because when someone looks at another with lust in their heart, 
What are they doing? They're seeing that other person simply as something to satisfy their own desires and needs. Last week, we talked about murder in the same way when Jesus said, you've heard said, do not commit a murder. But I say to you, anyone who says rocket to his brother, calls him his fool. Again, it's that language that dehumanizes that makes someone less than. Adultery does, or lust does the exact same thing. It turns in our minds, we begin to see the other person simply as something to fulfill our own desires. And thus, when we talk about this, lust is not simply for married folks, it's for single folks, it's for all. And he's saying that lust has consequences. And he talks about those consequences of what that are. And part of the consequence is judgment. And part of it is really like God wants obedience, but he also wants this renovation of the heart. And sometimes we want to try and separate those two. We want to separate our actions from our mind. But the reality of it is that we can't separate those two things. That our imagination is part of who we are. Now, do you think the problem of lust that Jesus addressed 2,000 years ago went away? You might even say it might be a more challenging issue even today. And I think it is in part because lust has become normalized. It's become a normal part of it. If you drive down the highway and see billboards or go to the grocery store and there are magazines on the rack or you watch an ad on television or on the internet, how many of them use lust as a vehicle to sell? All the time, right? Then like, drink this beer and you'll be hanging around with all these beautiful people. Drive this car and you'll be hanging out. Wear these clothes. And it's because you'll have these kind of people around you. Why? Because it's good to be around these beautiful people because I can possess them, because I can dominate them and move on with the idea. And so lust also is a part of our culture in terms of pornography and the widespread use of it. Pornography is objectification. It's dehumanization. It's using another simply for one's own gratification. And it continues to astound me every time I read statistics. I don't don't know why I'm shocked each time because I've been looking at this for 2025, not looking at pornography, looking at the issue. (laughs) Looking at the issue for 20, 20 plus years in ministry of watching the trends in society. And so latest statistics I read suggest that there's 12 to $14 billion in revenue in the United States generated by the pornography industry that 35% of all internet downloads are some form of pornographic material. 35% and 12% of all websites, 4.2 million websites, so one out of every 10 websites on the internet are some form of pornography. An industry that centers itself around the sin of lust, of inviting men and and increasingly more and more women to look and to see other people as objects simply to be used for their own desire and own gratification. And Jesus is getting at this here, and he's saying, we sometimes come into church and we think, oh, it's good. I've, I haven't slept with, you know, I'm faithful to my wife. I'm faithful to my husband. 
I'm celibate and singleness. And Jesus is saying, okay, that's part of it, but I'm not calling you to that. I'm calling you not just to that, but I'm calling you to something deeper. I'm calling you to be the kind of person whose heart and mind is changed so that you no longer lust after people, so that you no longer see other people as objects, so you no longer see them as someone to use for your own gratification, so that you no longer look at women and men on the street and begin to fantasize and undress them and do things to them. I'm calling that to change so that you're no longer searching on the internet, so you're no longer downloading these images that warp and shape and rewire the brains and the neurons within your brain. And so the imagination is connected to the body. And pornography has been shown to re, literally rewire the brain. Scientists talk about neuroplasticity. It means essentially this, that our brains aren't fixed. They're not hardwired like an electrical circuit, but instead, every time we read something, every time we see something, every time we do something, those neural pathways, the thoughts and minds are changing and shaping. And pornography takes those and shapes and rechanges them in ways that affect our bodies and the way we work. And so in a world that we live in, that far more than the world of Jesus said is saturated with lust and saturated with pornography, and even compared to when I was growing up, when I was growing up, there was the little back room in the laundromat, which was where we got our videos, little back room, which was where the, the, the adult, I mean, I've never figured out the meaning behind calling them adult videos. Or there were the magazines that were at the drugstore behind the rack that were hidden. You know where you can get pornography now? Right here. What did I say? One out of every 10 websites. I mean, you can just accidentally search for something and all of a sudden you're finding things. Which means that it's no longer a need to, to find the Playboy magazine or whatever the latest magazine and sneak it on the school bus. Every kid has access to this. And so we're seeing in a society increasingly younger and younger people exposed to pornography, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Sometimes it's that just looking for something and all of a sudden a video pops up. There's a lot we can say about that. But what I want to get to here is what the solution is that Jesus offers. How do we deal with lust? He says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right. Who's ready to gouge out their eyes? Cut off the hands. Do we, do we think, I mean, is that what Jesus is getting at, do we think? Or do we think simply cutting off a body part and is going to affect our ability to lust? We'll take it. Why just the right eye? I mean, if I'm blind in the right eye, I'm still certainly capable of lusting with the left eye, right? Right hand? Not sure how that affects my ability to lust. So I think Jesus is in part making an extreme argument. It's hyperbole. It's a reductio ad, absurdum, ad absurdum. Meaning he's taking it to the logical absurdity. So how many of you think gouging out an eye or cutting off your hand is an extreme measure? 
Yep, I would say so. It's like, oh, I was walking down the street and I saw this beautiful girl. I turned and I started to think about her. Oh. What Jesus is saying is this, is we need to be serious about this. That's how seriously we need to take it. Paul, one of the other a writer in the New Testament talks about, he's talking about put to death the sinful nature. So if it's not about gouging out our eyes or cutting off hands, so that's not your application point for today. Please, no gouging out of eyes, no cutting off of hands this week. What can we do? And I'm going to offer some suggestions. But before I do that, I want to talk about a wrong turn that we often take in church as we read this. And I speak to this from a perspective of 25 years in full-time ministry, of serving multiple churches, of attending multiple conferences and camps, of having children who've gone to camps and heard these things, of multiple books read on the topic. And I'm thankful for all those I've learned from, from scholars like Beth Elker Jones and uh, Beth Allison Barr, Scott McKnight, Sheila Gregoire, people who write and talk about biblical issues and about issues of sexuality. And I realize some of what I say here may be different than what you've heard before. Some of it may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But I invite us to listen and, and realize Sunday mornings are an awkward thing because I get the microphone, I get the podium, and I'm talking. But we can have conversations about these things. And so what I want us to think about here is a wrong turn that we take in the church. And that's paying attention when Jesus says, what causes the lust? Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully in your heart has already committed adultery. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. So who does Jesus place the responsibility on when it comes to lust? Person lusting, right? Is the problem the person being lusted after? Not at all. But often in church, this is exactly what we do. And I say, often in church, this is what we do because if you wanted, I could give you a list of five or six of the top-selling Christian books. I can talk about camps I've been to. I can talk about stories I've heard about this is exactly what we do, what I call the Adam syndrome. So who's Adam? Adam is that first guy that talked about in the Bible. And Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, they get in trouble. Eve takes from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then she gives it to Adam, and Adam eats it. God comes and says, what have you done? You know what Adam does? He blames the woman, right? We do the exact same thing with lust. And the way lust is often talked about, and what I want to get to is how the way we often talk about it in church hurts both girls and boys. And how we talk about it, and there was a famous book a few years ago called Every Man's Battle. And about girls dressing certain ways out of love for their brothers so they don't stumble. And so a, a comparison came to mind for me. And I want us to put this in your head as we begin to think about this issue of not blaming the other person, not blaming the person for our lust. And that's the way it's often framed in church. It's like, well, you shouldn't do that because you could cause someone to stumble. We're going to get to that issue. There's another one of the Ten Commandments. One of the other Ten Commandments is don't covet your neighbor's possessions. So what does that mean? It's, in a sense, it's a lusting after their possessions, like wanting what they have. Now imagine if we did the same thing with coveting as we did with lusting. If we blamed the issue of the coveting 
on the person. So all of a sudden I look and I see somebody who's driving a really nice car or has a big boat. And I think, man, I really want that boat. And I, would get, I begin to covet the boat. Is it the other person's fault they've got a big boat or a big car? Should they have to get rid of the boat, get rid of the car because I'm coveting? No. But we do that so often in the church with lust. We say, oh, well, that girl, she was dressed that way. She shouldn't do that because she could, should cause somebody to stumble. Well, do we do that with our possessions? Do I look at you in church and say, get rid of all your nice stuff because you might cause somebody to stumble? No. And it's the same way with lust. And the other realization is, even if we decided that it was a good idea and it's not to try and control the way women dress in church, it doesn't control the rest of society, does it? It would mean go to the beach, go to the grocery store. You're going to see people dressed in all different varieties of ways. Travel the world. And you're going to see people dressed in all different manners. There's topless beaches in the world, where places where women wear, and nobody, we can't go around and say, well, no, don't dress that way because it could cause someone to stumble. The other reality is this, that women can dress modestly, whatever that means, however that defines, and that doesn't stop lust. I mean, the reality of it is, an attractive woman is an attractive woman, an attractive man is an attractive man, no matter what they're wearing. And so we can look and say, well, you know, if she just covered up a little more, I would offer this to you. You could put a supermodel or, or whatever picture you have of beauty in a poncho or in a bed sheet, you know, in a you know, trash bag, and people would still find them attractive and still manage to lust after them. So the issue is not what clothing they wear. And you say, but, but the Bible said the Bible doesn't talk about that. As I look through it, maybe you can, I'm, again, encourage you if, if you see something different. There's two places in the New Testament that talk about women dressing modestly. First uh, Timothy and First Peter. Maybe it's Second Timothy. Anyway, Timothy and Peter both talk about that in their letters. And in both cases, they talk about jewelry and fine adornments. And it's an issue of modesty in the sense of not drawing attention to yourself. The prophet Isaiah talks about it in terms of not wearing it in terms of pride and self-sufficiency. There's never anything where the New Testament writers talk about dressing in certain ways. Now, some of the early Jewish writers talked about it that way. There were non-biblical sources that talked about controlling what women wear for the sake of the men. But Jesus flips it around and says, don't blame it on the woman. It's up to the man to take care of that. So what's the issue with this teaching that shows up in books and conferences and camps? The issue is it's not good to teach someone that they are responsible for another person's sin. Think of the message that comes to young girls who often are already struggling with the picture of their body. Maybe they're developing in ways they're unexpected. They're seeing images on TV and in the movies, and they're trying to live up to those, all kinds of things. And now we come and tell them, your body's a problem for other people. That harms them. 
And I've seen women shamed and accused of immodesty as they're already struggling with these issues. And so I'm inviting this church to stop doing that, but to hear the words of Jesus. And this is the kind of language, I'm going to offer one example of language. This was from a, a Christian magazine written to uh, preteens and teens a number of years ago. And it said this, and I quote, If a guy sees a girl walking around in tight clothes, a mini skirt, or short shorts, you might as well hang a noose around his spiritual life. What? In other words, it's telling young girls that somehow the way they dress is death to the spiritual life of their brothers. And whoever defines what those things are. So are there maybe conversations about girls' clothes? Yes, we can have those conversations about girls' clothes. A couple caveats with that is most likely it needs to be the parent who needs to be having those conversations. But the conversation shouldn't be about why the clothing she's wearing might cause a boy to stumble. But if we have the conversation, it's more about self-identity and motivation. Maybe talking about are you dressing for yourself or are you dressing for men? And so what I want us to begin to do is hear the words of Jesus who lays it on the person lusting and stop pushing it off onto other people and stop shaming people for the way they dress. When I've sat in church and I've had older men talk about a young woman up on stage and what they're wearing and about the struggle, I'm like, that's not her problem, dude. That's yours. But this message that gets preached so often in church, yes, it's harmful to girls. It's also harmful to boys. And I'll say that why? How is it harmful to boys? Because it equates noticing with lusting. Because so often the message is, you notice that girl is beautiful, you're lusting. And it begins to say, and so there's this language that was developed in one of the, this famous book, Every Man's Battle, talked about the idea of bouncing your eyes. And the idea was, you see a beautiful woman down the street, oh, you just look away, because that's going to stop you from lusting. Well, what's happening there is we've again reduced a woman to an object of temptation. We said, oh, she's a beautiful woman, she's just an object of temptation. And so like lust, it makes a woman an object. That women are boiled down to their bodies, and you're beginning to teach boys also that they can't control this, that it's inevitable. Think of just the title. Every man's battle. Like it's something that's hardwired into people that they can't help but lust. And Jesus calls us to deal with it, but the wrong way is to police girls' clothing or by offering an inaccurate defeatist message for boys. You know? And so we're telling boys, well, you can't control this. That they can't see, treat girls. Think of the message that happens when we say, well, Boys, boys are wired to lust. They can't help it. And essentially what we're telling them is they're unable of treating girls as fully human beings unless they're properly dressed. That's the message we're communicating to boys. We think, well, that's not what we're saying. Yes, it is. When you tell boys, like, girls need to control their clothing so you won't lust after them. You're telling them that they have no control over their own lives unless somebody else dresses the right way. Do we really think 
that a boy or man's walk with Jesus is at the mercy of the clothes that girls choose to wear? No, it's not. And why am I going on about this? Because I've seen too much of it. I've seen too much of the way it hurts people. And Jesus offers solution, and it's not ponchos. It's not ponchos for women, and it's not blinders for men. What does Jesus propose? Gouging out your eye, right? No, he, he, he offers, he wants radical surgery. He talks about a woman lustfully committed adultery where within his own heart. What Jesus offers is says, the solution is a radical renovation of the heart. And I would say this, the renovation is empowering men to treat women as whole people and women to treat men as whole people. And another little caveat, and it's not, and I've heard this, this too often too, is sometimes it's like, oh, you need to treat her with respect because she's somebody's daughter, she's somebody's wife, she's somebody. No, you don't treat her because of her relationship to a man. You treat her that way because of her relationship to God, and she's created in the image of God. It's not about her being someone's daughter or someone's wife or someone's sister. It's about her being a child of God, someone creating the image of God. And that's why we treat women with respect. That's why we treat men with respect. And so when Jesus, when Paul talks about we take every thought captive, he's saying, get those things in our mind. We can't be forced to sin by someone else's choice, including their clothes. And so what are some ways we gouge out our eyes? What are some steps that we can take then that Jesus might offer? And one is we identify those false narratives, particularly for boys and men. Do we see lust as inevitable? I don't think it is. It's not a battle that's commonly fought. Jesus wants to change and transform our hearts. The other thing we can begin to do is we can begin to shape our minds and allow the Spirit of God to begin to shape our minds to see other people as human beings, not as objects. So Sheila Gregoire writes it this way. She says, bouncing your eyes tells men to ask the question, is this woman dangerous to me? A more biblical question is to ask, am I being respectful of this person as an image bearer of Christ? We can't control what someone else looks like or what they wear. What we can control or begin to control with the help of God is what we think about them. We don't stop lust by covering up men and women. We stop lust by beginning to treat men and women with respect. By beginning to see, by asking God to say, help me to see people as people created in the image of God. So what sort of actions might you begin to take? When walking down the street, you see an attractive, I mean, imagine just the pain, imagine again back to that feeling of like, if every time you look at a, you know, see an attractive woman, like, oh, I can't look, I can't look. It's communicating a message to the girl and it doesn't actually do something for you. But again, what could you do? Look her in the eyes, say hello, and then continue on with your day. You're not relegated to say like, oh, I've seen a beautiful woman, I'm going to lust. No, you're not. It's not inevitable. But instead, we continue to treat it as inevitable. 
But instead, by the power of God, you begin to ask God to say, you, help me change this. Help me change this way of thinking. It doesn't have to end the way. You can notice, you can even think she's attractive. You can walk down the street and say, well, that's an attractive woman. But then you can continue on with your day. Imagine that. You don't need to go on to something else. Now, there are things we do that feed that lust. If you're struggling with watching pornography, if you're, there are ways to deal with that. And that is going to move you further and further. Again, I talked about it rewiring our brain. It rewires our hearts. And it begins to move us to see women as objects. And until you break free of the, and what can sometimes be an addiction, you're not going to be able to do that. So if that's a struggle, talk to someone about that. You know, when you're with women, this is speaking to men, you'll look them in the eyes. Up here, right? Engage in conversation with them. Ask questions. Why do we do that? Because they're human beings. They're not simply an object. Also recognize this, that lust thrives in privacy and isolation. So we need community. We need one another. That's why I said, if, if this is a struggle for you, oftentimes we need help in that struggle. We need to be open with someone. We need accountability. We need confession with others, be able to go to somebody. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to stand up here on Sunday morning and confess to everyone. Oftentimes that's not the best solution. It may just be finding that one person. And then if you're married, the person may not be your spouse, probably not the bed, but to talk to someone and say, here's a struggle I'm having. And then to begin to walk through it and begin to realize what can you do to break free of those issues? So Jesus here, when he's talking about looking at women with lust in our hearts and committing adultery, he's inviting us to something bigger and better. He's saying there's a new and better way of living. It's called the kingdom of God, and I'm inviting you into it. And in the kingdom of God, we relate to one another in a different way. This is what he's in. This is the big picture, the deep down depths of what he's saying is he's inviting us into a way of living where we see other people, not as objects to satisfy our own desire, not as something to gratify us, not as something to own or possess, but to see others as human beings created in the image of God. That's the picture that God is inviting us to through Jesus here, where we see other people in God's image, not as sources of temptation. And so as we begin to practice, as we begin to ask God to enter into our heart, as we begin to ask the Spirit, my prayer is that the Spirit may shape our hearts that way. So that we can begin to live the life that God has called us to. To see each and every person, every man, every woman, no matter how they're dressed, no matter where they are, as a person created in the image of God. May the Spirit empower us to be that kind of people. Amen.